today we are going to be joined by Christopher Stanley. Christopher is the litigation consultant with KRW Law. Listeners will remember that we had Kevin Winters on um, not so long ago talking about the work of the firm. Christopher has a very kind of specific um, role within the firm and I think it's very interesting to find out what he does. He, he shares his work, his, his day-to-day work, although it's, it encompasses so much. Um, he's got quite an extensive career working within human rights and public law and um, he'll take us through that. But just by way of introduction, Christopher is um, a graduate of law from Warwick University and he actually worked in academic um, he, he was an academic within um, third level institutions before he actually went on to become a caseworker in the Oakington Immigration Reception Centre employed by Refugee Legal Centre. Now that's a very, very interesting um, piece of work. He was there from 2000 to 2010 and he later moved on then to join the British Irish Rights Watch, which is an NGO as a legal officer. Um, he had qualified as a barrister in London um, previous to this. And he worked on producing reports around the Oma bombing, 1998, and the Bally Murphy massacre in 1971. So he has done extensive work there around legacy issues relating to Northern Ireland and has worked extensively with um, you know other NGOs on that piece, including Amnesty International, Justice, Liberty, and Cash, who we've spoken about before on the podcast. So very interesting work there before he joins uh, KRW as a litigation consultant, where he represents the interests of the practice in London, which is very interesting. He leads on responses to policy consultations, specifically on the legacy of the conflict in Northern Ireland and most recently the Legacy Bill. He leads and collaborates on England-specific conflict cases, which includes Birmingham and Guildford pub bombings in 1974. He also contributes to the representation of victims and survivors of systemic abuse across the island of Ireland and engages with international human rights organisations, including UNCAT, on these issues. He has led on contributing KRW submissions to the recent Truth Recovery Design Panel and he will represent the firm at meetings with governmental departments and politicians in Westminster and in Brussels. So he has also... um, recently been nominated as um, the Public Law Lawyer of the Year and one Times Lawyer of the Week. He also obviously works with the firm KRW, which was the Legal Aid Firm of the Year winner in 2020. So we hope you enjoy this recording and we will also publish links to some of Christopher's work. He has written quite extensively on a number of legal issues and I think it makes for very, very interesting reading. So hopefully you enjoy. Thank you. Hi everybody, welcome to this recording of Activist Lawyer and I'm very grateful to Christopher Stanley for joining me today via Zoom. Hi Christopher. Well, good morning, good afternoon, hi. And where are you joining us from? Which part of London? I'm I'm in South East London in Crystal Palace. Oh, very, very and good. And it's very sunny. Very sunny. Well, it's sunny today and, um, well, kind of, I'm looking out the window now, kind of <laughs> a typical Newry day. There's a little bit of sun peeping through there, but um, I know I'm catching you at a, at a busy time. Uh, we've gone through your bio there and, I mean, it's extensive and we're going to focus in on some of your um, you, the current work that you're um, engaged in at the minute, which is very, very important. I'm really interested to find out more about that. Um, and your thoughts on activism 
activism and the law in general because I think there's there's no better person given your experience to, to comment on that. But firstly, I'm going to go back in I'll time. I'm kind of to say so. I'm not sure that's true, but it's like... Well, I've read quite a lot of your um, the articles that you've written as well. And I mean, <laughs> um, to say that you've gone in, into detail and, and I mean, wide ranging um, issues such as immigration and all of the, the legacy work as well that we'll get into now. Um, um, it'll be really interesting to hear your, your commentary on, on that on a general level and then um, specifically. But just going back in time a little bit, you might take us back and our listeners back to how you started out in law. I think it was back in, wasn't it Warwick University that you went to? Um, yeah, I went to Warwick yeah. between 1981-84. Um, I come from a very ordinary Middle England background. Um, went to a comprehensive, um, which had been a secondary modern, actually not even a grammar, but I had some very good teachers. Um, I had an ordinary family, and I was the second person in my family to go to university. I was certainly the first person to do law okay. um, and both my parents and my teachers said I could do what I wanted when I had a proper solid degree mm-hmm. um, so therefore I was cajoled into doing law as opposed to English or history or yeah. drama or anything like that and I went to Warwick A because it was quite near mm-hmm. B because it was quite near to the Royal Shakespeare Company at Stratford which I spent a lot of time going to um, Ah. And C, by default, because I found out very quickly that A, well, it was a relatively radical campus university, even in the late 70s, early 80s, and that the law degree there was one of a law in context approach. Okay. Certainly not a rules-based or normative approach to teaching law. So instead of property law, we did housing, and instead of revenue law, we did welfare benefits. And obviously there was no such thing as human rights in the early 80s. But we did have civil liberties. Um, and I do remember, I think it might have been Bernadette McAllister who was invited to speak to us in a constitutional law lecture and she bought a rubber bullet, which came as a bit of a shock to many listening and seeing a rubber bullet for the first time. Um, so law, what it was about, social justice, laws, power, legal realism, and something we might touch upon a bit later, which was my mentor, William Twining, spoke and wrote about the conjunction between Pericles, the noble lawgiver, and the plumber, who is basically getting law job done, yeah. um, which is a balance which I've held very close on to. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. And in terms of politics, I mean, yes, it was the time of the rise of Thatcherism. Yeah, I was going to um, say, it was I, a very kind of heightened time in terms of um, the political environment. And obviously you mentioned Bernadette McAllister, McAllister there as well yep. you would have been very familiar obviously when we were living through what was happening yep. in, in the north at the time as well as as you mentioned yep. your Thatcherism so did it feel like it made kind of sense to you in terms of you know the the context within which you were studying um in Warwick compared to maybe other universities that had a more kind of oh god yeah yeah absolutely the minor strike was incredibly important mm. within the law school um and the, you know we were offering advice to minors um and in actions against the police and so forth, um, Thatcher came to campus and loudly demonstrated against. But, you know, I'd been I'd grown up in the 70s yeah. and had gone through the three-day week, power cuts, the power strikers striking then, mm. perhaps the post-war political settlement and the rise of the right, which became Thatcherism, mm-hmm. the rise of the National Front and BMP, 
and racism. Uh, but also, I'd throw in something which is important to me and may amuse other people, the importance of punk. punk. I'm a child of the punk generation. Right. Um, both, both, not just the music, but the aesthetic, the, the cultural and the, politi- the political nature of mm. punk. Um, she doesn't make me a punk lawyer. Um, but it makes me understand the importance of a, a countercultural mu- movement and as being a sort of countercultural lawyer, perhaps. Yeah. Why I then went to London to the bar, I have no idea. I mean, um, <laughs> oh. So, yeah, that's what I'm I wondering. To get, I, wanted to, I, wanted to bar, I wanted to go to London, mm-hmm. partly because of punk, I think, partly because of theatre. So were you a punk? <laughs> the bar, yeah, I was a, 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 a minor punk. Right. Um, and I went everybody else was going to business stuff. Um, and I was you my about sort of nature that says I'm not going to do what everybody else is doing, which is partly arrogant. Mm-hmm. Um, and I didn't survive the bar. I got a grant from, the, from Staffordshire County Council. I think the only person ever in Staffordshire to get a grant to go to the bar, um, which I did the bar course. But it was, mm. no disrespect, it was an Oxbridge-dominated course by rote. Right. Which I just didn't have the intellectual capacity to engage with or want to, really. Mm-hmm. I enjoyed London probably far too much. And I was called <laughs> to the bar. I passed the exam. But after that, I basically ran out of money. And in the 80s, you really couldn't survive pupillage getting tenancy without, from my point of view, private income, which I didn't have. Um, and despite the support of my inn, I just couldn't hang it. And it might have been lack of courage as well. Yeah. It was a completely alien atmosphere mm-hmm. to me, the bar. Um, mm-hmm. I'd say and it was... therefore I was called... Sorry. Go on. No, go on. That, and therefore I scuffled, scuffled, in the absence of money, I scuffled back to academia where at least I was secure of job security and an income for the time being. Okay. And probably yeah. stayed there far too long. Um, but we can talk about that in a minute. Mm-hmm. And that was, this was my, my next question. You did go back to academia and you published um, as well. You did it, you were, became a senior research fellow in law and social theory yeah. in 1996, which again would have been at a very, very interesting time. Um, yeah. What made you then transition, I suppose, from um, the academic world? And we can talk a little bit in, in detail about that and, and how you find that. Um, because a lot of the guests we've had on on the Activist Lawyer podcast um, have remained in that field or they've gone between the two. So it, it seems to be quite common. Um, and it's a question that we get asked a lot about less from listeners as well. You know, should I stay in academia? That's where I'm, I'm interested in theory. But, you know, what was it like to transition? Um, I suppose it was the first kind of work that you got into on a practical level was immigration, as I understand it. Yep. But how did you make that jump and, and why, perhaps? Well, firstly, it's, it's, it's a, my personal nature. I'm not, I'm not afraid to leap. Mm-hmm. I think, um, and you know, I'd had the security. I'd been part of the critical legal studies movement, the critical legal theory alliance. I published my monograph, mm-hmm. and I was beginning to. I was never a very good teacher, or a very never enthusiastic teacher, and I was literally in an ivory tower on the sort of twentieth yeah. floor of a tower block in southeast in central London, teaching law and being a research fellow. Mm-hmm. Um, but I was increasingly thinking and writing about justice and community, and particularly about those who are excluded from justice and denied the community. Yeah. But I was far behind the skirting board of reality and consu- consumed by theory. And therefore, 
a collision of professional and personal circumstances persuaded me to change direction. I was professionally qualified. Mm -hmm. I'd never practiced. I was now living in Suffolk Mm -hmm. um, for various reasons. And Oakington, the immigration reception centre, although it's never a reception centre, was advertising for caseworkers. So I, I took the the leap into practice um, in a very sharp way, I yeah. think. Um, and Oakington, not many people know what Oakington was or represented, but it was one of the first fast-track detention regimes in a secure environment. So not only were those claiming asylum in a secure environment behind gates subject to a prison-like carceral regime, but those who worked in there as well. Really? So you were actually on- in-house there providing services to to um, clients that were detained there? Yes. Wow. Yep. There were two teams, there were two NGOs on site, the Refugee Legal Centre and the Immigration Advisory Service. I know that you spoke to Colin Yo, who worked yeah. on the same time as I did. Right. Uh, at Oakington, and we provided on-site legal representation, which is absolutely novel mm. to get that sort of funding from the government. But it somehow justified the government's position to say, well, you know, it's a hostile regime, mm. but we're providing non-partisan legal advice through government money to independent lawyers to give these people representation, which they did. Yeah, That was highly controversial within the sector that they should have engaged with it in the first place. But then the hundreds and thousands of people going through Oakington would never have had independent legal representation because it was a fast-track, seven-day-a-week process working on a shift system from about eight in the morning till ten at night. And apart from Christmas Day, it was open and processing and removing people within six to seven working days. So on day one, the detainee, the asylum seeker, would meet his or her legal representative, be briefed briefed through the process. Mm -hmm. On day two, they'd have their substantive asylum interview. On day four, you had that two days then to put in your representation. And on day five, you got refused. And that was it. You got refused. Fast I mean, that's, that's, that's the nature of it. Mm. And then on day seven, you got removed. Wow. Usually into further long-term detention or into temporary admission. Uh, or you could be removed entirely. And at first, the nationality list was relatively um, small. Uh, people from China, Pakistan, um, and so on and so forth. And then increasingly the list got longer and longer to include Iraqi Kurds, really, yeah. uh, Iranian homosexual people, um, Zimbabwean farmers. Um, and after, you know, after eight years or so, most, represent, most representative asylum seeker countries were being processed through Oakington and other centres which were being established. Um, so you were literally immersed. Yeah, gosh. It's with the Home Office, the Refugee Council, Group 4, who together. ran the site, mm. all together. You ate together, you oh got escorted around, <laughs> and it was living in a detained environment, which then for a further two years, I worked exclusively in prisons with foreign nationals in prisons throughout eastern mm. England. Um, and these are prisoners on the wing, awaiting deportation, having served sentence. Mm-hmm. Um, or sentences even for your passport offences, you know, etc. But with proper, proper sentence prisoners, so to say, ordinary decent criminals, as they say in the north. Mm. Um, 
because some people are completely out of it. I mean, sort of, I've just came on with a false passport. I didn't even know it was a false passport, and now I'm sharing a cell with a, you know, a multi-murderer. What is that? My goodness. That sort of situation. Yeah. Um, so, and that led directly to doing tribunal work for substantive appeals, yeah. bail applications, deportation applications, um, and get to cutting your teeth, both in terms of the practicalities of lawyering and detained in environment, but also the practicalities of advocacy in the factory system of the Immigration Tribunal, because that's what the Immigration Tribunal is like, is a factory. Yeah, a factory um, system. So that was between 2000, so you did that for approximately 10 years in total, yeah. um, fully immersed in that work. And I, would you say yeah. that working in immigration and asylum, um, you know, was a good, is a good start to getting your um, kind of, as you say, cutting your teeth in terms of the practical experience, there's advocacy. You're looking at so many different issues there. You've mentioned um unlawful yep. detentions, you know, advising people who are in prison. So you've got the legal, uh, the criminal element coming into to that as well. You did 10 yep. years of that. And, you know, within that, I know you were um, advising on other types of immigration matters like work permits and um, family reunion applications as well and um, EU-related yep. uh, law. Did that give you a good grounding, do you think, um, in terms of uh, getting that practical experience? Well, it taught me to be a plumber. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, and it get because I I volunteered for the CAB in East Anglia. I became a specialist immigration advisor in addition to doing detention work, yeah. the asylum work. That was very useful for me to do the CAB work. I'm not even sure now that CABs exist in that form, um, but certainly cutting your teeth at CAB with somebody just walking in with a carrier bag full of documents saying that's it, that's my life, sort it out. Yeah. Um, particularly for immigration stuff, that was incredibly useful. Mm-hmm. Working in a detained environment. Hard. You don't. You don't get trained for it. You don't. You know. You don't get um, support in. Not that you need support. Um, it's a very specific environment for anybody who works in detained environments, be it, um, psychiatric hospitals, secure units, prisons, etc. Mm-hmm. Um, but okay. doing that, the the immigration work and the tribunal work, yeah, it's cutting your teeth, um, and I think it's a very good. Grounding yeah. with all sorts of practice, and if it doesn't make you an act- activist lawyer, I don't know what does really. <laughs> I think you're right there, and also you're working with so many. And after ten years, you do get the not compassion fatigue, but you do find that the backing against the Home Office and constantly, you know, ninety nine percent loss can be debilitating, it and is. you have to work your yeah. way through it or get out. Yeah, we've um, myself and my colleagues have um, witnessed that here as well um, in terms of people working on asylum and immigration matters. It just becomes so disheartening and soul destroying. And, you know, to be part of that factory kind of system, it still continues to this day. But um, just... And it was open to them that we tested whether it was legal in the first place. It was open to why I learned the basics of judicial review in cases like... I wasn't directly involved in Saudi... So Saudi went yeah. from, uh, was the challenge to the Oakton regime, went all the way to Strasbourg. It was our case at the RLC. We took it. Other cases since been taken to Harmersworth and so forth. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think, it, again, it was Colin who said, well, 20 years on, it hasn't changed. Yeah, I know. We're, looking at new, we're still looking at disused airfields and old prison ships. Old barges. Yeah. yeah. 
So taking a quick break here to say that I hope you're enjoying this episode of Activist Lawyer. Again, we'd be grateful if you could like, share and review the podcast. And please check out our website at www.activistlawyer.com where you will find some Activist Lawyer branded merchandise and some blog articles. Please tune in on Apple, Spotify or the platform of your choice for more great episodes coming soon. I suppose you you know you're working with vulnerable people, vulnerable groups, um, children as well, unaccompanied minors and families, yep. etc. Yep. And then you moved on um, to a really interesting position as legal officer with the NGO British Irish Rights Watch, where yep. you primarily worked on developing a litigation strategy in relation to third party interventions and public inquiries. Um, yep. Also, when you were there, you was this your first kind of um, work relating to um, Northern Ireland uh, issues like, well, issues is the wrong word, but um, inquiries like the OMA bombing and Bally yep. Murphy, yep. the Bally Murphy massacre, which we, of course, um, covered on previous episodes here. How did yep. that come about? And, you know, um, that's a, a quite a big shift, but I know you already had the legal stance there and the grounding um, with your previous work. But um, what took you to the British Irish Rights Watch? Well, pragmatically, the RLC, the Refugee Legal Centre and the Immigration Advisory lost their public contract to offer on-site mm-hmm. legal representation to asylum seekers. So many of us were facing unemployment. Yeah. Uh, the sector for immigration law was getting harder and harder um, and smaller and smaller. Um, and perhaps I jumped ship, I don't know. But um, I also, well, I was getting increased, as I said, the constant losing you know, you go to the bail. You go to a bail judge eight times for bail, and they still don't remove the person. Can be um, grinding, not just for the person who's still stuck in detention, uh, but for the lawyer trying to get them out. Um, and there was that aspect of it that the sector was getting more and more hostile. Um, there was the prospect of unemployment, um, and also I wanted to. I was increasingly interested in the policy aspect of NGO work. So it, it's a continu- it, there is a continuity. I was still within the NGO sector. Yeah. I was still doing client-based work, both individual clients, victims and relatives of the conflicts in Northern Ireland, and groups, as you mentioned, the Oma bombing, Bella Murphy, and so forth. Yeah. And there was direct continuity because the first um, task, the first project I was engaged in at BRW was monitoring the Baha Musa inquiry uh, regarding British military human rights violations in Basra in southern Iraq during during the incursion there and tracing what's now become known as from Belfast to Basra and back again which PSC were um, working on as well Um, so I was back to doing work with Iraqi people who suffered at the hands of the British army um, and increasingly getting involved in yes as you said the inquiry and inquest uh, work mm-hmm. um, and getting in terms with the conflict in Northern Ireland or mm-hmm. taking a client base, you know, developing a new client base, developing new areas of work, including, as you said, policy, inquiries and inquests, judiciary, continue to work on judicial review, learning about third-party interventions by NGOs, um, including third-party in- interventions in the Iraqi human rights jurisdiction cases, such as Al-Skini and Al-Sadoun, but also 
third-party interventions in very specific Northern Ireland cases for, for example, the length of pre-charge detention and Article 5 of the Convention in relation to the detention of Colin Duffy and also the right the right to speak Irish in the courts, which was a, uh, mm. a big issue. Um, and I also led on, this was completely new to me, the Bill of Rights in Northern Ireland, yeah. um, which subsequently got, got thrown into a very large circular waste paper basket. Um, yeah. And the consultative group on the past in relation to the outworkings legacy last, which I spent the last, along with many other people, mm. you know, 12, 13 years working on the legacy of the past and all the initiatives which have come about mm-hmm. until the legacy bill, which we'll probably talk about in a minute. Yeah, yeah. And also had that continuity of still working with NGOs. Yeah, now I was working with CAJ, RFJ, WAVE, PSC, Amnesty, Amnesty. but also with NGOs with an asylum-seeking profile such as Redress and Reprieve. Mm. Um, and I mean, I did that for five years and it was then a natural transition. Yeah, I was going to say to your your current position in KOR. Well, I think there's a a natural transition there because um, I felt that with the binning of the Bill of Rights in Northern Ireland, which um, Monica Monica Williams and her team had presented to the Secretary of State as they were asked to under the agreement, the reneging on the Stormont House Agreement in 2014, um, the undermining of the Good Friday Agreement, meeting yeah. Secretaries of State with clients such as Michael Gallagher, such as Geraldine Finucane, um, and despairing at the attitude of the British government in relation to what I now, I still wrestle with what, you know, about Northern Ireland. Yeah. Um, and the commitment to the convention generally in in English polity and the commitment to the Human Rights Act, as we've seen over the last 10 years, which has been wavering. Mm-hmm. Um, but the NGO sector is civil society, which is crucial in Northern Ireland. Um, I think my role as a, a, a lawyer would have been better served as to public and private law litigation in relation to many of these issues, which is why now um, with Kevin and KRW. Well, we had Kevin on not so long ago. Kevin Winters, of course, yep. he really um, had a fantastic recording with us and went into detail about his his um, kind of entry into the, the legal world and also the very, very difficult um, and tragic cases that he work, works on. So you yep. are litigation consultant, um, and I think you've been there since 2014, am I right, um, with KRW? Yeah. Yep. But you're based yep. in London, so is that yep. how does that work in terms of was that is that strategic? Do you think that's helpful to um, the firm as a whole? Um, do you specifically represent then or work with clients who are based in England or outside of um, Kevin's kind of you, you know the, here? I know he he represents North and South, um, and also then I mean we'll get into this in more detail, but the type of work that you're doing and we'll, we'll kind of go through a few of the kind of more um, specific cases, but just in terms of that you being based in London, how how does that work and is it working? <laughs> when I was at BRW, I'd spent probably half my time in the north. Um, and also in places like New York, you know, Washington, Geneva, and Strasbourg, and places. Um, And it's certainly true that post-pandemic, I don't think it really matters to a great extent 
where you are unless you're needed in court or installment or in the loyal or wherever. Uh-huh. And certainly Kevin and I are in regular communication every day from five in the morning till 10 at night sometimes. That's not my choice, Kevin. Um, <laughs> uh, and you know, he, as he says, it's like having somebody next door. Um, the fact that I'm in Penge, South East London, doesn't matter. Okay. What it gives the firm, I hope, is a a London profile. Mm-hmm. We have a Birmingham, uh, we have a Dublin profile. We have a London profile. It get, gives the firm my research capacity. Mm-hmm. We have very good researchers in the firm, but it gives them another research capacity and a skill set. I tend to lead on information rights FOIA and so forth, just out of default because I've done lots of FOIA work. Um, it gives our clients in England, be they our abuse clients or our clients such as the Birmingham pub bombing relatives or the guilty relatives, okay, yeah. a contact point. Sure. It gives the firm direct access, partly because I've worked hard at it with Westminster mm-hmm. and the civil service in Whitehall. It provides the firm with a continuity with the civil service organisations I've worked with before. Um, so there are those reasons why I think yeah. that's why London, and also obviously I can go to council in chambers here, do we brief and instruct and be a physical presence in chambers course, yeah. and that's go important. to meetings mm-hmm. as opposed to a disembodied looming presence over a Zoom or a Microsoft Teams meeting. Mm-hmm. So... I mean, you lead and um, you kind of collaborate on, I suppose, the England-specific conflict cases, yep. if we can, if we can call it that. In terms of your daily work on that, I mean, do you also are you involved in research and collaborating reports? Um, you know, harken back to your previous experience, and um, I, I do I do case briefs on themes which people might suggest. So Kevin might say, "Have we thought about this as a litigation strategy? Is there any mileage in this?" in terms of a JR, and I'm usually the one who puts together the brief as a general sort of working paper to say, let's, have we got an eligible client? Um, is this a runner, the pros and cons? I'll also do the briefs to council um, as the background work of this is what we want to achieve or this is what we think could be done by litigation. So I tend to do the briefs of that sort of nature. Yeah. There's no typical day. No, as an, as anybody not. working as, as, as anybody working as that will, will you know yeah. will note. So, for example, yesterday um, we had the announcement of the process to appoint members to the board of the ICR, ICRIR and the legacy bill, and the contention of the citizenship nationality requirement for those board members. Uh-huh. Um, and the contention that these appointments are being made even before the bill, which has had its further reading yesterday before the law, is even a received royal assent. And it, it is clear from our point of view that this proposed appointment process, particularly in terms of nationality citizenship, mm-hmm. would rule out those in the North who choose to identify as Irish nationals uh, unless they qualify, unless they have dual citizenship. It, it, it offends the Good Friday Agreement unlawful in terms of Section 75 of the Northern Ireland Act, and it's certainly a, another huge movement away from the spirit and the letter of the Stormont House Agreement 2014. Mm-hmm. 
So we put together a PR, I put together a PR draft, we put together a letter which was then um, sent to Lord Kane directly. Yeah. And I didn't expect to do that yesterday. Um, <laughs> so that took me that took me the morning. Um, and it might lead to a, a, a JR right, because yeah. you know somebody who might might apply as a as a victim, for example. And we've seen this in the South with the panel on um, the burial, the panel established on the burials act that has to have representatives from those people who've been affected sure, by yeah. unlawful burials are being excluded from that panel. And a relative victim in the North who might want to sit on the uh, information recovery board. Um, might be excluded for the reason that they choose to simply say, no, I'm an Irish citizen. Right. So there may be a judicial review of that, but I didn't expect mm-hmm. to do that yesterday. Um, <laughs> but it needed to be done. Yeah. And, you know, we do do media because media is a very powerful tool mm-hmm. um, because it's about awareness mm-hmm. and understanding. Mm-hmm. Um, so what might seem, the you know, we're asking about the criteria for a job, it's not just about the criteria for the job. It's the fact that it's a criteria for job which is going to exclude the very people who are going to be affected by this process mm-hmm. of the board, never mind the whole um, dreadful nature of the bill itself. Yeah. So on that, I mean, you've extensively worked on and contributed to the legacy work. We discussed a lot of it in in detail with Kevin previously, and um, you play a very important role in that. But I'm also interested in your work, which is kind of, relevant well very relevant at the minute here um in northern ireland all for probably the wrong reasons but in terms of your representation and your work with victims and survivors of systemic abuse across ireland Mm. um and in particular i'm thinking about the the mother and baby homes there's been a few reports Mm -hmm. recently on that what do you do in terms of kind of i suppose trying to push that forward and i mean are you and your colleagues frustrated and i suppose the, the the clients that you represent the fact that we have no functioning executive here to carry this work forward. Yeah. In terms of, well, that's two questions. The representation of those survivors, we will continue to represent and support and advise because that's you know, what we do as, a, as professionals. Mm-hmm. In the absence of any functioning mechanism and the absence of any for, forthcoming realisation of either a panel or an inquiry, um, we perfectly understand, you know, we know there's a power vacuum, there's a, a vacuum, a lacuna in the centre of government in Northern Ireland, in Stormont. Um And without, we've seen the extension of civil service powers again this week by the Northern Ireland office. Um, so we've got government by civil servants. Um, and apart from constantly pressurising both the domestic uh, community in the north and Westminster, but also the international community because there are international obligations in relation to the human rights violations which have been inflicted on victims and survivors. Um, we can only continue to advocate. Yeah. Um, but the thing about activist lawyering, you can only activate, activate when there's something to activate against. At the moment, we've got to avoid. There may be goodwill in the civil service. Mm-hmm. There may be goodwill because we had Judith Gillespie in place, who was a former ACC for PSNI. Mm-hmm. She's now gone. Yeah. People will take positions and move because nothing's happening and they so, can't deliver. So frustrating. We can't deliver that for our clients mm-hmm. unless it's by litigation. And therefore, again, we come back to in the void, 
of a human rights deficit, be it the legacy of the conflict in North or South, if the state creates a human rights deficit, and there's a point to be litigated around that because there is contravention of a human rights norm, then we will litigate. That sounds litigious. It's not, it's not litigious. It's simply addressing the absence of political will. Whether you agree with the political will or not, at the end of the day, it doesn't matter. There has to be political will for, the, for these things to happen. And if they're not happening, then if there's a democratic... even if you know, We cannot ask the judiciary to direct a non-existent executive to set up an inquiry or a panel injury abuse, and the judiciary would not want to do that. Mm-hmm. Um, and we know that there are, you know, in relation to the resourcing of the mechanisms of legacy, particularly Pony, for example, the judiciary says this is absolutely dreadful, the uh, statutory powers, but the judiciary can't say we direct the executive to give Pony another 20 million. Yeah. Um, that's not the role of the judiciary, but that's how we have to address it, mm. both North and, and South. South yeah, um, absolutely. So frustrating. Sorry, that's a weak answer, but there's only so much. No, no. I mean, that's. It, it goes back to being activist lawyers. That activism, yeah. you know, you can't activist act. You can't. If one step back, it, you know, the North is being run by the civil service. Mm-hmm. And by default, the civil service is taking its orders from the Northern Ireland Office. Yeah. There's a whole question of devolution, devolved powers, and so forth. Um, the civil service is perfectly capable of running a panel, running an inquiry, and that's what they will do anyway when the Stormont executive finally signs it off. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you could just cut out the politicians entirely and simply say, but then that would be the accountability point and the transparency yeah. point of we're being run by civil servants. Um, <laughs> well, you know, Belgium's been run by civil servants for 20-odd years. It doesn't really stop Belgium functioning as a state. Yeah. Just, just something on, uh, very practical about our work on abuse and yes we've talked about the global lacuna or void in addressing these issues systemic abuse in the north I mean the other party that we don't talk about is not just the state but it's the Roman Catholic Church and the other churches and institutions that are involved in enabling and failing to protect um, they also bear some responsibility for all this and they get they get yeah. off the hook Absolutely, we've had the issue of money being paid out Mm-hmm. to victims and survivors' compensation. But that money is coming from the taxpayer, which it should be coming from the institutions who can afford to pay the money and have the responsibility to pay that compensation. That's the first point. Yeah. So therefore, there's a player in these debates about what's happening at Stormont that has to step up and say, actually, um, we need to be doing something beyond the empty apology, and we can talk about apologies and what they mean. And the rhetoric, the rhetoric apology, all hiding behind their Catholics or whatever they hide behind, um, hoping this will all go away because it certainly won't. So on a day to day, the other thing I was doing yesterday or the day before, I can't remember, was drafting a, a very, this is a specific legal point, drafting a letter before claim uh, regarding Father Malachi Finnegan of John Moore, well known in the public domain as a paedophile also well-known exposed as an RUC informer, uh, using the benefits position both as a paedophile and to inform against um, uh, members of the Republican uh, nationalist community. Um, drafting a letter of, of claim around the issue of my right to truth. Yep. 
this is something I'm You're right. Sorry. In. You're right to the right to the right to truth. Okay. Right? Do I have a right to truth? Do I have a right to know mm-hmm. why the state tortured me? Yep. Yeah? Mm-hmm. This comes out it's under Article three and Article two of the Convention, specifically Article three. Um and it's a developing jurisprudential norm about is there a right to truth? Do I have a right to truth as to why the state allowed Father Maliki Finnegan to abuse me when I was in a secure situation of a college or a parish church? Yeah. Um, we get then thrown back as lawyers with either neither confirmed or denied he was an informer, or we can't tell you that because of national security. So in relation to not just the right to truth, you also have well, what is national security? Well, it's not defined. And in the information rights forum, which I work sometimes, uh, national security, if it means anything, should, should actually be the national security of the democratic principles which undermine or which you know, uphold our society. And that includes transparency uh, and accountability, which is exactly the opposite to what national security is rolled out as an excuse to deny that Malice Lee was an, a paid informer and a paedophile, protected paedophile. So, A, I want to just expose the clerical institutions who sometimes slip away from the issue of the state and institutional systemic abuse, and they, you know, they are not going to get away with it. And B, that do victims have a right to truth? Because when the apology is made by the state, um, the victim could turn around and simply say, well, I don't, I'm not going to forgive you because I, I don't know why you allowed what I, why what happened to me happened and you don't understand what you're apologizing for you don't understand the crime you're apologizing for yeah. so the apology politically enjoys the is a very problematic aspect and part of this is what I'm trying to weave into a um, fragrant letter before claim which will probably go nowhere but you know it's worth a punt it's worth a punt that, uh, yeah. again going back to but then is that legal activism well, it's legal. It's trying to think creatively using the tools we have mm-hmm. as lawyers and the experiences we bring as lawyers mm-hmm. um, to working because law is not value free. Law is a power structure, and power only operates in relation to other forces or against other forces. Um, and particularly, the public lawyer, public law should exist to protect those who are being oppressed by the state and the use of law. That's partly what I see as the role of the legal aid system. That's very much why the legal aid system in England was was introduced as part of the post-war settlement as a core principle of the welfare state, legal aid, to hold the state to account for uncontrollable oppressive power. Mm -hmm. That's gone. Anybody who works in legal aid, is an activist lawyer by the they default they're still working in legal aid. Um, you know, working in legal aid practice is an activist lawyer, and it's nothing to do with your politics. It's just a fact. Or, yeah, it's just a fact yeah. that that's what you do. I could, you know, I could be an environmental lawyer. Yeah, yeah. I could be a discrimination lawyer. I'm not. Um, it's not that I don't choose to be. It's just that I, you know. I guess it depends. Animal welfare. Yeah, it depends on, on your area of work and your, your personal history. 
um, you know, what you've lived through. Everybody has had a different definition of activist yeah. lawyer and what it means to be one. Just specifically in terms of your work, and I know, you I mean, your work has been acknowledged widely, you know, having been Times Lawyer um, of, of the week a couple of years ago, as well as working for a firm who won Legal Aid Firm of the Year back in 2020. So, I mean, just in terms of your work and your experience would you do you call yourself an activist lawyer and what does that mean specifically to you that term well i don't call myself an activist lawyer um which probably means i have no ground to do this podcast um (laughs) it's well it comes given my age i think given my background of being um was educated in the 70s and 80s and it was about cause lawyering and civil liberties Um, and to be an activist lawyer was part of a radical move so I'm in that between generation between 60s radicalism and 80s Thatcherism Mm -hmm. Um, I cause law because that's my experience and that's the practice which I've chosen to develop or have have chosen for me Um, I'm generally I'm generally sympathetic to the excluded yeah. and to the oppressed uh, and to the um, those outside of structures who may choose to be outside of structures and should be protected for that choice. Um, that just might be my genetic makeup. I was just going to say, you've referred just earlier on in our um, when we were discussing, you've called yourself a plumber. Um, yeah. What what does that mean in terms of you know the work that you do and in the legal context? To be an activist lawyer, which I know what it is in my head, but I probably can't articulate it, yeah. um, means you have to have certain skills to get the job done mm-hmm. and to achieve social justice or right um, or truth. And the skills are the ones of practical lawyering, mm-hmm. um, of how to draft a compelling letter of claim, how to abide by the rules to have your letter of claim read and not thrown out by the court, for example, or, you know, by, by the person you're sending it to, um, mm-hmm. how to draft, how to be concise, how to deploy, how to interpret litigation, how to read case law. These are the skills which basically every lawyer should have, yeah. and you deploy them on behalf of your client, and my client base tends to be people who are seeking truth or seeking rep- reparation, yeah. um, and seeking a voice uh, in many in many cases, where... and 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 articulating a voice. You have a specific yeah. set of skills which I other people you know that I have. I don't have other sets of skills mm-hmm. uh, which my clients have, and therefore I'm giving them, as, as I said, to give voices to those who would be silent or silenced, because mm-hmm. many people are vocal but can't articulate their grief anger yeah. in a way which would be acceptable, accepted and you know, that's a contested point by the system, the state. You're just, I heard Owen Patterson, former Secretary of State in, a, um, in Washington, he was dismissing David Wright, who was Billy Wright's father uh, and the report into Billy Wright's murder had just been released um, and he's old, you know, David Wright's never going to be satisfied um, He's a complaining man. There was a very dismissive comment in front of me and Geraldine Finucane. Um, 
And I also sat with another Secretary of State. No, actually, it might have been Patterson again. I've just been burdened by Patterson. Um, with Michael Gallagher in Hillsborough. And Michael and Stanley McCoon were explaining why an inquiry was needed. And I mean, Patterson simply turned around and said, well, it happened on my watch. So these articulate people. Yeah. Um, and the system will not listen. And therefore, they silence and hope these people will go away. And in, in terms of the legacy and in terms of abuse, obviously they hope these people go away because they're dying. Yeah. The evidence is literally dying. Therefore, to be an activist lawyer in these fields, we have to be quick. You have to be. Which... And we have to be precise and clinical. We have to make decisions about legal aid and who is eligible. We have to be careful about crowdfunding. We have to be careful about you know, adverse costs orders. We have to know how to work with politicians without being seen to be lobbying politicians. Sure. If that means me, and I did this this week for a case we have running in Cyprus of a guy, British Army guy who was killed by an American serviceman in Cyprus. If that means me drafting an early day motion for an MP who doesn't know how to draft an early day motion, or drafting a written question for that MP to send to a minister, or for me drafting the terms of reference for a Westminster Hall debate, that's not being me being political or lobbying. That's just me using my skills as a lawyer on behalf of my clients to get Parliament to look at this issue. And we've done that a lot in Birmingham. That's a, that's a skill set. It's coming. Writing an early motion, which is 300 words maximum, um, is a plumbing skill. But it's an incredibly... It's a, yeah. <laughs> useful political skill to be able to deploy because not everybody can do it. No, useful and ne um, necessary. And I'm just wondering on a side and note. And banal, but then much of what we do is banal. Yeah, it is. And I mean, you've gone through there, obviously, the practical skills and a lot, no matter who you represent, you know, they're the skills that you have to acquire as a lawyer. I suppose it's the, the clients that you're representing there, you know, bring you down a different context and, and giving a voice to people who you've just mentioned or either have no voice or have been silenced. But I'm wondering as yeah. well, you're very... You've written extensively as well, and I've read quite a few of your articles. I'm sure uh, there's so many more that I could go through. Based on, you know, I mean, they've been published in Irish and um, just kind of quite broadly, I think it's fair to say. Do you see that as a form of activism as well, in the sense that, you know, as a lawyer, you're able to get a message out on a particular matter um, through your your writing skills um, and your harking back then, I, I suppose, to your time as an academic and somebody who you know published quite extensively. Is that part of being an activist lawyer or is that something that you simply enjoy to do? How does that fit into your work? Well, thank you. Thank you for reading the stuff. And thank you for saying I have certain writing skills, which is always nice to hear. Um, I, I started writing extensively during the lockdown. Um, and yes, I had written an awful lot as an academic. And lockdown, I had things I wanted to shout about. Yeah. And apart from opening my window at night and clapping for nurses, um, writing was a way of shouting for me. Um, I write in a completely personal capacity. I, write, I draw upon in some of my writings on the stuff that I do. Yeah. And anything I feel which is um, transgressing or getting onto territory which is professionally difficult, I will put to my colleagues, yeah, by and large. <laughs> um, because writing is an enjoyable thing to do for me, yeah. and that's probably what I'll do whenever I stop being an activist lawyer. Um, but writing is also, again, um, shouting and 
articulating my, I don't articulate a political view, I articulate about inequity or inequality or injustice mm-hmm. uh, or failure or corruption um, or collusion, yeah. um, which I think are important things to place in the public domain for people who want to read them. Um, so yes, if it if it is read and taken up and even responded to in a hostile fashion, at least it's had some effect. It's given some I think food for thought, and you cover quite a few I- few issues, you know, as well. And I I guess a lot of your work in general and your writing will be will depend on the political climate at the time. And I mean, any of the guests that we've had on here who work in public law or human rights are you know either frustrated by what's happening politically. How do you kind of is there a balance between your work in terms of the legal aspect and politics? How does that work? What's the interaction between the two? Well, I'm going to start with the negative. That, and I think you might have discussed this with Kevin about the risks, the professional and personal risks of activist lawyerism mm. and how what we, what we as activist lawyers, those listening and those who are thinking of um, joining us, uh, risk in terms of um, the attack yeah. and the hostility and the um, and I often think it's literally you know a couple of hundred white men sitting on the back benches on the green benches in the House of Commons because it is the Tory back bench by and large and the Daily Mail reading public um, I'm not sure how representative it is, but they have the they have the dead, dead hand over the fourth estate, which is the media. Yeah. Um, and what we do is easy to attack because we get paid for it by our public money sometimes, um, and therefore we have to be cautious how we present. The I have to, I think I have to be cautious about how I present the work I do. Uh, I'm not scared of being attacked, but I wouldn't want to bring the attack upon my colleagues and the firm I work for, the people I work with. Mm. Um, both, you know, we've had trolls and abuse and stuff, yeah. and obviously it goes back to the whole legacy of lawyering in Northern Ireland and the threats, you know, which Kevin spoke spoke about and can speak about far better than I can, which don't go away because we're an easy target with, you know, um, Cat legal aid lawyers or yeah, tank we've, chases. We've heard it all we've had, before. You've, it continues. you've heard it. Sorry, you've heard it all before. But well, it, I know, it, but it just it continues. I mean, it's you're right to to comment on it again, and I I think your your stance there in terms of it, it's good advice as well, just in terms of being aware of that. And although, as you say, you know, people don't mind, or we we don't mind if we work within this um sector of being attacked and it's going to happen and it seems to happen more frequently now than ever before, particularly from, you know, high ranking members of the government, which is absolutely, um, you know, disgraceful. I think your point there is very valid in terms of being careful as to how, you know, that can impact perhaps your client or the cohort of clients that are being attacked as well by the government by, you know, vicariously attacking you or us as the the representative legal representatives you know I guess it's just to be cautious about that I'll give you an example of the Birmingham pub bombing people who are, are articulate are you know they can exercise their own voice and they do and they get mm. great to work with and we've worked with them pro bono by and large since for 10 years yeah and every day virtually I will do something or one of us will do something Barry or me about the Birmingham pub bombings right 
be it the civil action, be it the call for a public inquiry, be it the, out, the failure of the Westerns police to investigate, be it dodgy former IA blokes in Dublin, you know, whatever. And Brandon Lewis this time, former Secretary of State, um, did meet the Birmingham Parliament and tried to sell the legacy bill to them. But he'd also written the week before in Conservative Home, which is the um, the voice of the Conservative Party by the fireside, um, of, you know, tank-chasing lawyers offering false hope and promise to, you know, innocent victims who deserve better and the government will give them better. And at this meeting in Birmingham, um, they usually try to silence, not Barry, but they usually try to silence me um, because the civil servants were there on Zoom. I was there on Zoom, Barry was on Zoom, the clients were in the room with Brandon Lewis. Um, and I said to Brandon, well, and he said, who are you? So I'm, I'm one of those nasty tank chasing lawyers who's offering false open expectation <laughs> the very people you're speaking to yeah. wow. and he completely ignored it mm-hmm. on the grounds that he was writing for his audience his constituency he wasn't writing for my clients yeah yeah absolutely and i expected him to i mean i called the guy for his bollocks i'm sorry <laughs> i called the guy for his nerves um <laughs> he just let it wash the right over him he didn't even say, he didn't even say i didn't mean you yeah, mm. which would have been even worse because that would have denied my whole existence. <laughs> um, <laughs> oh, but, God. I mean, I, I, it's, you know, the work that you're dealing with, obviously you're going to get um, reaction like that. It's it's not surprising. But I'm wondering just... In but the sad thing is, if it's not Brandon Lewis one day, it'll be someone else. it's going to be Dominic yeah. Nard the rep, yeah. the next. Yeah. And Keir Starmer says he will appeal the legacy bill. Well, I'm not holding my breath. But that's no right. disrespect to Keir Starmer. It's and it's no, you know it's, he he will and I know that Keir Starmer knows the Northern Ireland situation because he was the human rights advisor to the policing board. That's right. Yeah. Um, and he should be held to account for saying he will repeal the bill. Um, now he's going to have a huge legislative agenda when he comes into power. When I'm not he sure where that. If he comes into power, uh, I'm not sure where that will be on the legislative agenda to repeal the bill because very few bills actually ever get repealed. Um, but you'll put the pressure on obviously we'll put the pressure on but then again that's the very you know we are opposed to the legacy bill because we are instructed and we represent people who are opposed to the legacy bill mm-hmm. we think it's a bad piece of legislation and we're not alone as you know we're not alone in that we're, yeah. we're standing shoulder to shoulder with the DUP mm-hmm. on this um, and in a very strange caucus very strange. of opposition <laughs> Which is the only thing that leg- the only good thing to come out of the legacy bill is the strength of cross community opposition to it mm. from all sectors. Yeah. But as we know, again, I go back to that two hundred majority in the green benches in the House of Commons. That is what this bill is for, because it's about not prosecuting old veterans. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Which you know, as we know, the statistics don't add up. Yeah. And people, you know, Dennis Hutchins, who died was going to face trial for the manslaughter of J.P. Cunningham. You know, yes, because he should have done. Mm -hmm. Not lawyers. It wasn't the lawyers who decided to prosecute Dennis Hutchins. It was the independent law officers who then get attacked. So, you know, Baron McGrory, oh, you're a Catholic, your father did this, you're a Catholic, you're bound to do this, you're not an independent law officer. Well, that's, you know, we're we're now not just attacking tat cat legal aid lawyers, we're attacking members of the judiciary. Yeah. 
goodness. With impunity, mm-hmm. right? And with the benefit of um, parliamentary privilege, which they don't understand. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I do despair, but I continue to plow along along with those who I work for with in the great firm, that is Kevin Winters. Yeah, yeah, and we, we thank you for, for your work and for sharing it with us. Just one final question to you for anybody listening who is interested in, I suppose, your, your career, your journey and, and how you got to where you are. What specific advice would you have for anybody who wanted to get in? I suppose maybe maybe thinking about going down the academic route and transitioning um, you know, to practice or indeed getting into the line of work that you're in. What advice would you have specifically for them? I hate the word journey. Um, <laughs> uh, my journey. Um, well, as I said, you know, be prepared for life, life changes and life elephant traps. Uh, and that life isn't always smooth. It is for some people. Not sure whether it should be sometimes. Um, don't take anything for granted. Be prepared for the unexpected. Be prepared to take a leap of faith. Mm-hmm. Um, so yes, you may not always be able to go back, but going back isn't necessarily a good thing. As opposed to, one of my favourite images is by Yves Klein, who was a French surrealist, who has a man jumping off a wall in Paris, I think it is, and he's throwing himself into the void. It's staged, obviously. Yeah. Um, but it, he is just literally off coming off the wall. Now, I have that attitude, but that's me. Um, and it's not bravery. It may be foolhardy, fool, foolhardy for me to be like that. Yeah. Um, but I'm at the end of my career. Um, I've probably got another six or seven years to go. Well, I stop. I don't know. I mean, it depends who wants to employ me and hopefully can will continue. Yeah. Uh, I'll go on for as long as I need to do because my wife will say, what else are you going to do? Um <laughs> It's but a vocation. It's, not, a it's vocation. not. It's not even following your heart or whatever. It's um, there's more than one path. Yeah. And I do believe in having a skill set mm-hmm. and transferable skills. Sure. Yeah. Be it linguistics, be it the plumbing aspects of lawyering, um, be it you're a good criminal defence lawyer or you're a good civil litigator. You need the skills basis, and it, as I've seen in my career, I have a transferable skills basis as a researcher, a writer. And you know, still learning to be a practical lawyer, both in terms of public law judicial reactions, also in civil litigation, which you know my mentor is Kevin. Yeah. So I'm still developing my skill set and you know, the skills of advocacy, which I learned before the tribunal on wet Wednesday afternoons, doing bail applications. People who patently were not going to get bail, but you still do it. Yeah. So you just have to keep running and pushing and then suddenly occasionally leap off and see what happens. A leap of faith. Well, Christopher, thank you so much for sharing your work with us um, and also your, um, you know, your career and your your advice there, which is absolutely fantastic. Um, thank hope, you. Hope to hear from you again. And I'll also publish um, some of the links to your articles, which I find very interesting on our blog. And I would really encourage anybody to just read through them um, who's interested in, in Christopher's work. Uh, thank you again thank you. and hope to chat Bye-bye. to you soon. Thanks everyone for joining me today. If you like the show, please remember to share and leave a review if you have a moment. And you can also check out our website, www.activistlawyer.com, where you will see some blog articles written by our guests and contributors, as well as some fabulous Activist Lawyer merchandise.
This podcast was recorded in Granite Podcast Studio. Interested in starting up your own podcast but don't know how? Granite Podcast Studio can help. Record your podcast in our state-of-the-art studio, which is based in the heart of Newry City. Our studio has cutting-edge and user-friendly technology and can seat up to four people. We also provide an editing service for our team using your guidance and editing notes to provide you with a flawless finished product, leaving your listeners wanting more. For more information on how you can get started, visit www.granitepodcaststudio.com.